in a series that we're calling Therefore Everyone. And in this series, we're looking at the second half of Romans. If you remember the first half of Romans, we called For Everyone. And what happened there is Paul was laying out the good news that Jesus brings. And he keeps saying, it's for everyone. This message of Jesus, this life transformation, it's for everyone. But then he kind of shifts gears in the middle of the letter and he says, okay, now, now that you've received all of that, on the basis of that, as a result of that, as a consequence of that, therefore, you now need to be living and extending that message for everyone. So that's kind of the transition that we've made. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 12. How many of you remember? Good, nine of you, good. Well, in Romans chapter 12, and we actually looked at Romans 12 for four weeks, and most of you didn't remember, four weeks. But last week, we flew over Romans 12 at 30,000 feet, and I said Romans 12 is all about relationships and how those relationships connect, where the engine for living out those relationships happens and what the results need to look like. So we said the beginning of Romans 12 is about our relationship to God. And so we need to offer our bodies living sacrifice to God. God, what do you want me to do with my time, my energy, my talents, my money, all that stuff? Offer your bodies. Secondly, we live in relationship to ourselves. How do we live in relationship to ourselves? With a balanced view. Don't think of yourself more highly. Don't think of yourself more lowly than you ought. Have a sober, a balanced understanding of yourself. Thirdly, how do we live in relationship to fellow Christians or the church community? And primarily there, it's about service. So Paul reminds us, hey, every one of us has spiritual gifts. God's given us supernatural enablements to help people experience more of the gospel and to extend the gospel. We need to be serving one another in the body of Christ. And then we also looked at difficult people. You've got some, you are some. We looked at difficult people and how we're to love difficult people as difficult as that may be, by reminding ourselves that we are difficult people, we're God's difficult person, but God turns us into a follower and we need to be loving, difficult people. And some of you are probably thinking, well, boy, you can't get bigger or worse than that, difficult. Oh, yes, you can. Romans 13 follows Romans 12. It's complicated, right? 13 comes after 12. And what's the beginning of 13 in a sense? Romans chapter 13 adds another concentric circle. And these people are more difficult than difficult people. Who are they? They're politicians. They're government officials. That's who they are. Don't believe me? That's what Romans 13, 1 through 7 is about. It's about the government, about politics, about governmental administrators, about IRS agents, zoning boards, school boards, taxing. It's about all that stuff. See, I told you, more difficult people. Now I'm going to prove my point that we're gonna talk about difficult people. But I wanna prove it to you individually, not collectively. So I've gotta ask you to refrain from jeering or cheering. First service was not very compliant. So let me say it again. No jeering or cheering. Do it inside your head. Use your inside voice inside your head. So when I mention names and organizations, don't utter a sound, don't groan. Don't moan, don't cheer, don't whisk, do nothing. Just sit there and think and feel. All right, so here we go. Just to prove my point that politicians are difficult people. Ready? No jeering, cheering, or any audible sound. President Donald Trump. Pretty good, it's pretty good. <laughs> Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The IRS. 
Republicans and Democrats, the Supreme Court, zoning boards, your local school board. You're biting your lip, right? (laughs) Now, here's the interesting thing, the ironic, interesting, and somewhat sad thing. When some of you were cheering on the inside, others seated around you were jeering on the inside. And when you were jeering, they were cheering. Isn't that strange? And here we are gathered together as one community in one location, in one church, and we've got massive differences of opinion on those issues. Well, before I read those seven verses, I want to tell you a little bit about the situation. And that's important because I think some of you probably think that the situation couldn't be a whole lot worse than the situation we're in or have been in. So let me tell you a little bit about the situation that Paul was in when he wrote the words. So I'm going to tell you the situation, then I'm going to read it, and you won't believe it. Paul did not write the book of Romans in 1995. He didn't write it in the 21st or 20th century. Paul wrote it in the first century, the middle of the first century. And when Paul wrote the book of Romans, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Now let me just to kind of give you a taste of Nero and his reign, let me tell you a little bit about Nero. Nero was adopted by his uncle Claudius, who was the emperor. Claudius didn't live long after that, and Nero's mother was implicated in Claudius's death. Mommy Nero wanted her son to be emperor, and she conspired to have the emperor murder, kill Five years into his reign, Nero had his mommy killed. I guess she was becoming a little overbearing, took her out. Well, eventually Nero, you know, his administration, kind of known for corruption, cutting corners. There were some good things that happened, but Nero was, you know, kind of into himself. And he looked around at the architecture of Rome, and, you know, that was kind of old school. He didn't like that. And he wanted to build a giant palace for himself. So he mapped out 300 acres in the middle of Rome, but there were buildings there that had ugly architecture on them. So Nero had them burned down. Now you couldn't go to like, you know, the ruling body of the Senate and say, hey guys, do you mind if I burn down 300 acres in the middle of the city? Couldn't do that. So kind of behind the scenes, clandestinely, he worked and they burned down 300 acres in the middle of the city. Nero eventually put a big palace there. Oh yeah, and a giant statue 100 feet high of himself on the 300 acres. Well, there was some pushback because of the fire. And so Nero needed a scapegoat. He blamed the Christians. The Christians were already kind of weird, right? I mean, they're not worshiping all the other Roman gods. They got this really weird kind of Jesus thing working. So Nero scapegoated the fire on the Christians. Well, then Nero has to kind of be the be the prophet. Prepare, prepare of justice. So what does Nero do? He rounds up the Christians, has them arrested, has them tried, and hundreds of them executed for the fire that he instigated. The executions were not real uh, pretty. Some of them were crucified. Some of them were uh, fed to the wild animals. You know, the old gladiator movies like feed Christians at a line. That really happened. Nero did his share of that. Other wild beasts. Oh yeah, and just to kind of highlight the fire deal, 
He had lots of Christians covered in tar, and while they were still alive, lit on fire to light the city streets at night. So that's Nero. Eventually, most historians believe that Nero had both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul executed. That's Nero. Kind of makes America seem tame, doesn't it? Now, with that as the situation, follow along as I read Romans 13, 1 through 7. So here's what Paul writes, with Nero as emperor. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring, punish, to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Those verses sound a little different knowing a little bit about the situation, doesn't it? You see, we want to read our situation into Romans 13. The situation was a little different. Well, here's what we're going to do. We talked about the situation. Let's talk about the basic instruction. And we could spend a lot of time on this. Here's kind of a shorthand way we're going to do it. We're going to look at government's job description, according to, first, according to Romans 13, and then the Christian's job description concerning government, according to Romans 13. All right, we're just going to do that. You can tease it out. Well, what's the government's job description? Well, it appears right there in verse four. So here it is. For the one in authority is God's servant. I mean, can you believe? Now, my guess is Nero really didn't think he was God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar didn't think he was God's servant, or if he did, he didn't care much about it. But Paul says, no, 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 nothing happens in this world without God knowing what's going on. When Nero ascended to the throne, God didn't leave the heavenly throne and somehow come back and say, oh my goodness, how did he get become emperor? I mean, God knows what he's doing. He's able to handle all of this. And so it's, he, the, those in authority are God's servants to punish wrongdoers and wrongdoing. See that from verse four? That's kind of their job description, twofold. To punish wrongdoers and wrongdoing. Now, don't misunderstand. Don't make Romans 13 say something it's not saying. Romans 13 is not a discussion about church and state issues. It's not a discussion about how the church and the state should function together. No, no, no. It's about Christians living as citizens of countries in this world while living out our ultimate citizenship in God's kingdom. That's what it is. It's about individual Christians living out those responsibilities. And Paul begins by saying, hey, the government is a job description to punish wrongdoers and to punish wrongdoing. And that's a really good purpose, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine if wrongdoers never got arrested, never got punished? Can you imagine if wrongdoing just went on and on and was allowed to run wild? 
I mean, we'd live in a chaotic mess. It would be exponentially worse than it is, and it would be worse than it ever was in Rome. And so Paul says, no, you need to understand, God instituted governments. Not that every government official, not that every government does it exactly the way God wants, but government has been established to punish wrongdoing and wrongdoers. Now, here's an important distinction to keep in mind. Romans 13 comes after Romans 12. Got that? 13 after 12. In Romans 12, we were told point blank, personal revenge is out of bounds. Personal revenge is out of bounds. You cannot retaliate legitimately as an individual. But Romans 13 says, but governmental governmental agencies, the state, not only has the right, the state has the responsibility to do what individuals are forbidden to do. The government must punish wrongdoing and wrongdoers. Individuals are forbidden to take matters into their own hands and punish those that they believe have wronged them or wrongdoing that touches them. Is that how it works? If you look at the beginning of verse four, it actually gives you the umbrella reason. What's government for? For the good. Individuals good and the common good. And I don't have to tell you, sometimes the common good infringes on the good of some individuals. I mean, being a government official is complicated, right? And that's kind of what Paul's alluding to. For the common good and the individual's good, and as a subset, that's the overarching principle, governments exist for the individual's good and the common good. One way that they do that is by punishing wrongdoing and punishing wrongdoers. So when you're doing a thousand miles an hour, you know, through a school zone, hopefully you'll get arrested. And you will be punished for that wrongdoing because there could be tragedy and horror that results of that. That wrongdoing and you as a wrongdoer should be punished for that. That's what governments do. When you break the law, there should be consequences for that. That's a legitimate function of government that's on their job description. All right, got it? Well, let's look at the Christian's job description. We're all kind of, yeah, that's what government should do. Yeah, that's right. But before you point fingers at government, now let's look at the Christian's job description. This one's a little, more, uh, a little more pointed. Let everyone be subject to the government, governing authorities. Notice it does not say, be subject to the governing authorities if you like them, if you voted for them, if you agree with them, if you think they're right, if they're not infringing on your likes, if they're not infringing on what you think your rights are. No, no, be subject to the governing authorities. That's what it says. Not a whole lot of caveats, not a whole lot of exception clauses or consequences. Be subject to the governing authorities. That's what it says. So how you doing? Not just in behavior. How you doing in attitude? A lot of complaining? A lot of celebrating? And while you're celebrating, other people complaining, while they're complaining, you're so, see how that works? How are we doing attitudinally? At the last verse that I read, it says, um, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, if you owe respect and give respect, if you owe honor, give honor. How are you doing on that one? How are you doing on the respect and honor thing? And if you have difficulty uh, respecting and honoring President Trump, how'd you do with President Obama? If you have difficulty with Obama, how are you doing with President Trump? You see, as times change, we shift gears, but respect and honor aren't commanded by Paul and God if your party's in office. 
It says respect and honor, government officials, God put them in place. And so in behavior and in attitude, be submissive, be subject to the authorities that God put in place. And we got this whole tax thing here. Look at this. I put this up here because April's coming. And Paul, couldn't you have ended in verse five? And this is why you pay tax. Can I let you know a little secret? Some of you know this because some of you are elected officials. Some members of Calvary Church serve on school boards and zoning boards. Uh, Some are county commissioners. We have some that are running for judges right now. They'll be running in the primary. Um, So all of that happens. Can, Can I let you know something? those of us that are more critics than we are participants, it's tough to govern well. So I'll tell you one little story. I was not happy a couple of weeks ago when I go online and I read, and I read the reporter each day. I go online and read the reporter. And it says that the North Penn School District is requesting the state that they can increase the amount of money that they're able to increase the tax allowance by because they want to exceed what, what they can legally do. I don't like that. But I have a daughter that teaches in the North Penn School District. And the school in which she teaches has not had air conditioning until this year. This is the first year air conditioning was put into the school. Governing's complicated, isn't it? It's easy for us on the sidelines to kind of make it simplistic. It's complicated. So pay taxes, give respect and honor. They have a tough job. You may not like all of their decisions. You may not even like them. If you owe honor and respect, then give honor and respect and recognize they have a tough job. They're working at it hard. You may not like them. You may not agree, but we need to respect and honor. Well, does this mean then that whatever the governing authorities tell me to do, I have to do? Does that mean that all of those that didn't follow through on Hitler's instructions, they should have followed through? Does that mean if you've got some despotic, evil ruler commanding every, all the citizens to do something, we just have to do it because we have to be subject to the governing authorities? No. In fact, there are hints in the passage and other passages that show us how complicated this is. Romans 13 is not the only passage on our responsibilities as citizens. So let me just walk you through a couple of them. There are some cases in the Bible, some examples, where followers of God, people seeking to live out what God wants, they seemingly compromise with governing authorities in incredible ways that we look at them and say, are you kidding me? How can you do that? For example, Joseph. Joseph's in Egypt. He becomes prime minister. Can I let you in on something? Joseph was basically Egyptianized. He spoke Egyptian He kind of bought the Egyptian philosophy. If he didn't, he'd never have the position. He's marrying a priest's daughter. The priest is not a priest of God, right? We can look at that and say, Joseph, what are you doing? You can't do that. Well, Joseph did it. And we don't read anywhere. And Joseph really screwed up. And then you have Jeremiah. How about Jeremiah 20? Here's a good, read this this afternoon. Jeremiah 29, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he's the last one to kind of attack Israel or Judah, he attacks them, he rounds up all the people, takes a big cadre of the Israelites, the Jews, back to Babylon. They are in bondage and captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah whips off a letter to them. And here's basically a paraphrase of the letter. Hey, so all you Jews living in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar's thumb, here's what you need to do. Pray for the prosperity of the city. Pray for Nebuchadnezzar. 
Say, what? He rounded them up. He killed a bunch of Jews. He took, pray for the prosperity of the city. What? Yeah, well, that's kind of the one side. But then we have other sides. How about um, when people don't follow through and submit? You ever, you ever hear about the Hebrew midwives, early part of Exodus? How's this work? Pharaoh in Egypt says, hey, uh, midwives, kill all the baby boys. So deliver them, take them down to the Nile, dump them in, because we're afraid too many Jews running around. So you midwives, here's a command from Pharaoh. Kill the baby boys, all the Hebrew baby boys. The Hebrew midwives said, no. And they didn't do it. Huh. How about uh, Daniel? Daniel's told, now nobody's allowed to pray to anybody else except the pagan king for the next month. Daniel says, uh, no. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three uh, of Daniel's buddies. Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down to my statue or you'll be killed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, well, you know, Nebi, look, you do what you got to do. We'll do what we got to do. You may kill us, whatever. Just know this, we're not bowing down. Hmm. Acts chapter 5. Peter's arrested, brought before, and some others brought before the Jewish authorities, right? The ruling authorities, just like we're reading here in Romans 13. And the authorities say, no more preaching in Jesus' name. We're not going to kill you. No more saying salvation's only in Jesus. Peter says, uh, you guys do what you got to do. I got to do what I got to do. Let me ask you a question. Should I obey you guys or God? My vote is I'm obeying God, not you. So you do what you do. I'll do what I do. I'm going to continue to preach. Now, how do we put that all together? I don't know. It's complicated. But maybe we could make this statement. We are not obligated to obey governing authorities if they directly command or forbid what God calls us to do. But notice, it's direct. It's not indirect. Don't you think it would have been easy for Christians in Paul's day to reason like this? Wait a minute, I can't pay taxes. Remember in verse six, he said, pay your taxes. But wouldn't, he, wouldn't they be able to reason like this? Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is I can't pay my taxes because if I pay my taxes, some of my tax money is going to be taken and that tax money is going to be used to persecute and probably kill other Christians. I can't pay my taxes. Paul says, you pay your taxes. Huh. Maybe we could say, unless the governing authorities directly command or forbid what God calls us to do, we need to submit to the governing authorities with respect and with honor. That cuts both ways, right? So if, if you're asked to do too much, you need to say no. And if you're asked to do too little, you need to say no. I think what Paul's doing in Romans 13 is he's wrestling with something that Jesus said. Jesus threads the needle. One day, Jesus is approached by some people that are trying to trip him up. And they come and say, hey, Jesus, we have a question for you. Should we pay taxes or not? And they think they have him, right? And Jesus says, hey, anybody got a coin? Show me a coin. He said, whose picture's on here? Caesar's. And Jesus says, hey, here's an idea. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And all those Jews would have known because Genesis 1 says they were made in the image of God. Jesus is saying, your number one priority 
is to make sure you have the priority and the values of God. Secondarily, in kind of all the JV issues of life, yeah, you submit and you follow the governing authorities unless there is a direct command or something forbidden directly. All right, so there we go, kind of the instruct. But what does that mean? Well, uh, let me tease out a couple points of application. Now, you can do with these whatever you like, except just sit there and be quiet while I talk. Uh, first point of application, and this is kind of the overarching one, keep government and politics in proper perspective. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to say it as plainly as I can. No human government, no group of politicians, no political party, no political platform, no government in the United States or any government in any other country will ever be able to solve the human problem or fix this world. None. There is no human government, no political party or platform that can fix what ails us and ails this world. Only Jesus can do that. And you know what that means? Everything else is JV. Play the varsity game. What's the varsity game? Continuing what Jesus started. Experiencing the love and grace, forgiveness of God and extending that. That's not the secondary thing, that's the primary thing. Politics is secondary. It's important, but it's secondary. Let's keep the main game the main game. And we can disagree on some of the you know, some of the planks on the field of the secondary game, but let's agree on what the main game is and let's agree that it's only Jesus and the gospel that solves what really is wrong with us in the world. And let's put our time and energy and money and that stuff into playing the main game. I find it interesting and sad that for the most part, and I feel the temptation to put our resources and our primary time and energy into playing the secondary game and we forget the primary game. Let's keep the main game the main game. Secondly, Acknowledge and respect the authority of government and civil leaders. They're God's servant. Acknowledge and respect. Acknowledge and respect. That is what we're called to do. So if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe honor and respect, show honor and respect. Now, one specific way to do that, the third one is pray. Pray for our country. Pray for the political leaders. Pray for the government. Pray for those people. Pray for our country, its officials and leaders. Here's what's really sad. I can be ticked off when I read about the school board wanting to raise my taxes. And I can be ticked off about decisions zoning boards make or don't make. And I can be angry at this political decision or that one or the planks in this platform and that platform. I can be angry about all that stuff. And I can be angry and fuss. And I can be with people that agree with me. And I can be vocal about that. I'd be with people that disagree about me. And I can be angry at them and not like them. But let's face it, at the end of the day, I don't pray for any of those people that much. That shouldn't be. I talked to Rob Lockery this week, a county commissioner for Bucks County, and I just kind of ran by him what I was going to say, and he says, Charles, you can forget everything else you're going to say. Would you please encourage the people of Calvary Church to pray for their government, to pray for their leaders, to pray for the politicians? He said, we really need it. Uh, so can I infringe on all of you? Pray for our country, pray for our government, pray for its officials and leaders. They've got a really tough job. Let's pray for them. Fourthly, engage with culture in the political process. I don't know what that means for you, but don't just step away from people and the process. 
As I said, we have people at Calvary Church that are elected officials. That's great, that's, what, that's how they're engaging. All of us, if you're old enough and are kind of registered and all, if not, get registered, vote. That's part of what it means to engage. Maybe you're not gonna be a politician. Maybe you're not gonna be on a school board, or maybe you are of some kind of political party rep. We have people that work at voting places. Somebody came up after the service and said, Charles, please tell people, if they're gonna vote in the primary, they have to be registered. Democrat and Republican can't be registered independent, vote in the primary. We've got people to do all of that. I don't know what engaging for you means, but I do know we need to engage. But engage lovingly and engage gracefully, not engage critically and angrily. That's not what we should be doing. Engage. If nothing else, love your neighbors, your coworkers, your church members and friends that have the same and different political perspectives and persuasions than you. We all need to engage at least that way. Number five, don't assume that your political convictions and viewpoints are biblical absolutes. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are some issues that have been co-opted by political parties that really are moral. And so I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about political persuasions that are not related to moral issues. So there are some absolutes. If it is a biblical absolute, you need to stand and speak against it if they're for it or for it if they're for it, right? You need to do that. But there are a whole bunch of other things. Most of what political platforms and parties are about are not biblical absolutes. So don't assume that your convictions and viewpoints are biblical absolutes. I have a conversation partner, a good close friend. He's an African-American pastor who pastors a large African-American church in the center of Norristown. He and I get together for dinner about once a month. And we get together intentionally, and we talk, we love each other, and we talk about politics. And I hear his viewpoint, and I don't understand. And he hears my viewpoint, and he doesn't understand. But we love each other. We keep the main thing the main thing, and we try to understand maybe what the absolutes are because if he really is trying to tenaciously follow Jesus and so am I, then if we're disagreeing on something, that must not be a biblical absolute. How are we gonna do that? See, here's the problem. We wanna take the political discussion, we got conservatives and we got liberals, and we wanna put the gospel, the Bible, onto the end of the continuum where we are. Here's the problem. The gospel is not on the Republican-Democrat continuum. The gospel's not on the conservative-liberal continuum. The gospel's on a whole different continuum. The gospel confronts conservatives and Republicans in some places, and the gospel confronts Democrats in some places and in some ways, and the gospel confronts them differently because they're different. The gospel's not on the continuum. So what do you say? We have the main game, the main game, and we have our political viewpoints, and you live them out, you engage as appropriate, and you love your brothers and sisters, and you fly the gospel flag and a Jesus flag at the top of the pole. And all of your political impressions and affiliations are much further down the pole. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for speaking to us kind of right where we are. We confess that we live in a, in a country and a time when division and chaos and hatred seems to be running rampant. And if we're gonna be honest, Lots of Christians get caught up into that and churches make affiliations that they shouldn't be making. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to keep the main thing the main thing and you'd help us to realize that what really ails us and what really is broken in this world is not gonna be fixed by governments or politicians. It's gonna be fixed by Jesus and the gospel. Help us to play on that field and to live out that game as we continue what Jesus started. We pray in his name, amen.